Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. I'm just thrilled to be here and thrilled that you can be here. We can be together like this. From the time Jesus stepped on the pages of history, one thing was very clear. He was not going to be like anybody else who had ever lived. He wasn't some new and edgy teacher. He didn't come to preach some kinder and gentler version of the law of Moses. Matter of fact, he didn't come to extend anything old at all. He didn't come to make a 2.0 old covenant law of Moses. He came to do something new, something brand new, something the world had never seen and never experienced. He came to bring a new agreement between God and man, a new contract between God and man. We call it a new covenant between God and the whole world. He came to fulfill the old and then create the new. Now, the fact that he came to do this, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see he alluded to this all of his life. He hinted at it in what he did and what he said. But during the last week of his life, no more hinting. He was going to make it crystal clear what he was here to do. He was going to talk about it on Palm Sunday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then on Thursday night at what we call the Last Supper, he was going to initiate this new covenant. He would seal it in his blood on Friday night and confirm it by rising from the dead on Sunday. That's Easter. We'll celebrate that next week. And that's what makes this last week of his life the most important week in the history of the world. That's why it is the week that changed the world. So what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to go through the Last Supper, the initiation of this new covenant. We're going to start on Palm Sunday. We're going to go quickly through the week, work our way to that, that wonderful special night. And then next Sunday at Easter, we'll pick up Good Friday all the way through Easter. So if you're ready, let's go. Let's discover this week that changed the world. It started on Sunday, Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday, Jesus tells his disciples to go get a donkey for him to ride on. Evidently, he doesn't own one, but evidently the man who has one is willing to let Jesus use it. They must have known one another. But as you read it, you think, why a donkey? I mean, as opposed to a horse. Doesn't he know anybody who has a horse? I mean, a horse is a powerful, manly kind of thing to be riding in on. It's a war animal, not so much a donkey. A donkey was the opposite. Riding on it was pretty humble stuff. Why did Jesus choose that mode of transportation? Because years ago, a prophet named Zechariah said this. In Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Now, some people were so pumped up, so excited about this. They threw palm branches ahead of them. They threw down their clothes on the ground for the donkey to walk on. And they yelled out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means save us. And they meant from the Romans, save us. They thought this might be the king, like the kings of old, 
who would lead them in a war against the Romans. He thought this might be the king who would throw out these hated Gentile invaders like the kings before uh, him had and establish the borders again of Israel. But Jesus wasn't that kind of king. He was the king of kings. And he did not come to kill anybody in a religious war. No more are we going to be doing that. He came to bring a new kind of kingdom, one that would take people who were divided racial, racially and politically and unite them all together under one banner of love to serve God and serve the world. They assumed Jesus had come to do something for their nation, but he came to do something for people of every nation, to establish a kingdom of love. Later that day, on Sunday, he threw out the crooked money changers from the temple. He healed some blind people, some lame folk. And these weren't random acts. Each one of them was meant to be evidence that he was the Messiah, the King of Kings. And those in power, they got it. They realized that what he was doing was purposeful. It was meaningful, everything he was doing. And they didn't like it, not one bit. They were spitting mad. They were scared because they had a vested interest in the Old Covenant, especially the temple, and in everything that surrounded it. If Jesus was going to bring something new, that meant the old was going to pass away, and they didn't want that. They got their livelihood. They got their prestige. They got their power from the old system so they could brook no new system. And as the children were yelling, Hosanna, that made them especially mad. So they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Are you going to let them call you the son of David? Jesus said, mm, yeah. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. What a day. And it's only Sunday. The Holy Week is only beginning. Jesus leaves Jerusalem that night. And he goes to a little suburb, a town called Bethany, four miles away. And then on Monday, he starts back into Jerusalem. And apparently he skipped breakfast that day. And he did it on purpose because he wanted to give a visual illustration of what he had been saying about this new that was beginning and the old that was dying. So he saw a fig tree by the side of the road. He came to it. He found nothing on it to eat but leaves. That's all that was there. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately... The fig tree withered away. Strange stuff? Yeah, looking back 2,000 years, it's strange stuff to us, but it wasn't strange to them. It was a visual, an illustration, an object lesson of what he had been saying. The old was going to wither and quickly. Before that week was over, the new covenant would begin. The new way of relating to God. The old way of animal sacrifices and temples and priests and all of that was going to go. Just like the tree went. It's going to go. When that happened, God's presence would no longer be in a building, any building. It would be in people, indwelling all the followers of God. The shell of that temple, it would remain until 70 A.D. Not too much longer. And then it would be utterly destroyed. The scripture says then that Jesus came into the temple once more, and this is probably on Tuesday. 
And by that time, the anger of the priests has reached a boiling point. They're afraid. They're scared. They're going to lose it all. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They asked Jesus. But as you read the account, Jesus doesn't spell it out plainly. If he did, they would have stoned him. And that would not have fulfilled God's plan. Jesus didn't come to die under a pile of rocks. He came to die on a cross. So instead, he told them some parables. And each one had a lesson, very clear lesson, about the old going and the new beginning. One of those was the parable, parable about some wicked vine dressers. He said, a landowner leased out his vineyard. And he wanted to receive the fruit of it, but they wouldn't give it to him. The people that were using the vine uh, vineyard, they beat his servants who tried to collect what was due. They killed others. And finally, they killed the very son of the owner himself. Jesus, after he told this, said, what do you think should happen to people who would act like that, to people who would do that, kill the son of the owner of the vineyard and, and, and act like it all belongs to them and not to the owner? They said those people should be utterly destroyed uh, and the vineyard should be leased out to others. Jesus said, mm, yeah, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. He wasn't talking about a political nation. He wasn't going to take the, the kingdom of God away from Israel and give it to Syria or to Lebanon or to South Africa or to America or to Russia. No longer a political nation. God would not have just one uh, nation of followers. He would have followers out of every nation all around the world. He was talking about his church. This new nation was going to be his church, his ecclesia. You and I, believers everywhere, Asia, Africa, South America, Europe. Jesus leaves. It's Tuesday night. He goes back to Bethany for the night. And then on Wednesday, two things happen. In just a moment, we're getting to Thursday, and I'm going to need all of your focus when we get to Thursday because it's the new covenant. But on Wednesday, he's anointed for his burial. A woman comes and opens a very expensive flask of oil, pours it on him. And some folks are upset, Judas in particular. He says, why this waste? This stuff was worth a lot of money. And Jesus said, no, she's done a good thing. She anointed me for my burial. And do you know what happened with that smell? It was so strong and so powerful. It would have still been on him when they whipped him. The guy who whipped him could have smelled it there. It would have still been on him when the crown of thorns was on his head. It still would have been on him when they took him down to bury him. That woman did a good thing. And then Judas did a bad thing. He betrayed Christ that day. Now it's Thursday. And this is the day that changed everything. This is the day, the day that changed all of history. This was the day Jesus inaugurates, announces his new covenant. And what happened on this day opened the way for every one of us to have a personal relationship with God, for every one of us to be connected to him, to have what the scripture calls salvation. And it all took place at something called Passover. Now, Passover was an annual celebration of deliverance from 
Egypt. But it was bittersweet this year because while they're celebrating how God set us free from Egypt, they're under the bondage of Rome. But Jesus and disciples get together to celebrate this. And they begin the meal, and when they do, Jesus does something disrupting, out of the norm. He takes a piece of bread, he breaks it, and he says, take this, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, they probably were sitting there and thinking, what did he say? Um, Jesus, this is not how you do this. Uh, this has been done for 1,500 years different than you're doing it right now. For 1,500 years, when the bread is broken, we say, this is the bread like our ancestors had when they escaped out of uh, Egypt. It was the unleavened bread because they had to eat it in a hurry. We've been doing this. The disciples probably thought our whole life, our ancestors did this. Jesus, you're doing it differently. You're, you're changing the meaning of this bread. This is supposed to be a, about God coming to Egypt, about God punishing Egypt and the people of Egypt and rescuing the nation of Israel. But Jesus was saying, in essence, not anymore. We're changing that now on whenever you do this remember me remember this new covenant and this would have been a shock how much of a shock well let's do a present day kind of thing suppose on Christmas day which has a certain meaning that's it's had for 2,000 years suppose on Christmas day I gathered some people and I said okay uh, we're going to change the meaning of Christmas today uh, Christmas from now on is going to be all about me it's not going to be about what happened 2,000 years. It's going to be about me. So might as well change the name, Mary Gary Day, if you like that one. And when you get together, let's sing songs about my birth. Let's give gifts in my name. And then make sure you talk about how wonderful I am on that day forever. If I did that, uh, someone please lock me up. I mean, that's, 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 that's crazy stuff. What Jesus did was like that. And so the disciples, though they said nothing, must have been thinking, Jesus, you can't make Passover about you. But he was. They go on eating, leaving them to wrestle with what they just heard. And then after the meal, he takes the cup and he said, this cup is, and he's supposed to say, this cup is representing the blood that was uh, from the lambs that were killed and was put on the doorpost and the death angel came to Israel and passed through. But he's going to change that too. He said, this blood is the cup of the new covenant. Not a new covenant, the new covenant. It had always represented the covenant, a covenant with one nation. Every time it was drank, it represented that. But from now on, it was going to rep represent a brand new covenant. And it had been prophesied about years ago, this new covenant that Jesus was putting into place Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within in them the old covenant had a law written on tablets of stone 
Jesus said in the new covenant, the law is going to be inside of people, in their hearts. It's a law of conscience, a kingdom of conscience. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was it. This was the one promised by Jeremiah, the new covenant, the new relationship. And again, not between God and just one nation, but between God and people of all nations. But what kind of covenant was it? Was it going to be just like the covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel? No, not at all. It was going to be totally different in its essence and its character. Let me tell you about this. The covenant that God made with Moses, with the people of Israel, uh, with Mount Sinai coming down and bringing all the laws, that covenant was something called a bilateral covenant. Now, it's a new term probably to some of you, but it wasn't to them back then. A bilateral covenant means that I'm going to make some promises in this contract, this agreement, and you're going to make some promises in this contract, in this agreement. And if you keep your part, I'll keep my part. And if I break my part, then you're out of the covenant. You don't have to keep your part. Bilateral, an I will if you will kind of covenant. And that was the covenant that God had had with the people of Israel, with Moses. If they kept the law, if they kept God first, if they didn't have any idols, if they did the sacrifices, all of that, then God said, I'll protect you. I'll be with you. Uh, I'll, I'll be there. I'll defeat your enemies. Your, your crops will prosper. But if they didn't, and they often did it, then God said, you have not kept your part. Sometimes God put them in time out for not keeping their part, 70 years in Babylon for not keeping their part. This bilateral covenant was not just between God and a nation. It was made every day between different people. If I was going to have a contract with you, I'm going to sell you some land, for example, then I say, okay, on my end, I'm selling the land. On your end, you're giving me so many sheep or something. We make a, an agreement, a bilateral covenant. And the way they would sign these bilateral covenants, they, they didn't get lawyers to write things down, you know, 80 pages and whoever reads them. The way they would do them back then, make these covenants, was visual. They would take an animal, and they would kill the animal, and they would take the two parts and put them over here and there would be blood in the middle between two parts of this animal and then if they were making this bilateral covenant both people would walk between the pieces over the blood as a way of saying you know what be it unto me as it was to this unfortunate animal if I don't keep up my part but this covenant this night was not a bilateral covenant. It was called a unilateral covenant. It was made by just one party. And that one party who made it was going to do it. It was going to be in his blood. It was on him. And it was for us. Because God knew we could never keep bilateral covenants. We could never keep them forever. Can't happen. And so God decided he was going to make it, a covenant of grace with us. This is what Jesus said. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. You don't have to shed your blood for it. It's in my blood. Jesus was going to play the part of the animal in this visual of this covenant. And he was going to be the only one to walk between the parts. 
parts. He was the only one who was going to hang between two thieves. It was his blood that was going to be shared. He didn't ask us to get up on a cross. He was going to do it all. We are on the receiving side. He's on the giving side for us on him. He said, I'm doing it in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that would have had the disciples' heads spinning. Wait a minute, Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, that has to be done in the temple, doesn't it? I, I, they didn't say this out loud, but it's got to be in there. Uh, isn't it done in the temple? And in your blood? Don't we, aren't we supposed to kill animal bloods and uh, blood? And, and your blood, who's going to shed your blood? You're popular. They just yelled Hosanna a few days ago. You're not going to die. Your blood's not going to be shed. They were so confused, no doubt. And their response the next few days was fear and hiding and what in the world's going on. It wasn't until the resurrection that they got it. Those days, those 40 days of Bible school with Jesus, that they got what was going on. Remember John the Baptist? He said about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just one group anymore, but the whole world. Jesus made the covenant that night. The next day, he ratified it with his blood at the hand of the Romans. This was the new covenant, the everlasting covenant the one that would fulfill every other covenant that had been made up to that point. And there would be no more temples. We don't worship in them anymore. No more animal sacrifices. We don't need to do that anymore. No more priests who make the sacrifice for us. We don't need that anymore. No more keeping of laws, and if I don't, then God won't. Kind of bilateral, not anymore. We are the temple. Jesus sacrificed. We live under his covenant of grace. What do you have to do to receive the covenant? You just have to believe that Jesus gave it to the world. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It doesn't mean whoever believes about these facts, but whoever believes in the one Jesus who gave the new covenant, whoever trusts in him receives the covenant. So let me ask you this as we get ready to close. Did you know these things? Or were you raised in a, a church, perhaps, or a religious background where you thought that the new covenant was kind of like the old? That, that you had to keep a certain end of the bargain, and you despaired because you couldn't. And, and you thought, am I keeping my end up enough? And, and if I'm not, then maybe I don't get to go to heaven. I don't get the new covenant. And, and uh, maybe my sins aren't forgiven. So you tried harder. You went to church more. You, you uh, confessed your sins more. You did all kinds of things, thinking that God was requiring of you to walk between those pieces, to, to, to make that kind of covenant on your end. If you thought that, then this is the best message you've ever heard. This is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. The gospel of love. That God loved us so much that he gave his life for us. So I want to ask you, 
If you never have, pray with me now to receive this new covenant. How do you receive it? Again, just by believing that Jesus gave it to you. That simple? Yeah. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. The cost of Son of God is life. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But you can receive it now. I'm going to say a prayer for you. Father, I pray for everyone watching. God, those that have been confused, Lord, by just religion or maybe some uh, version of the gospel that led them to believe that this is like it was in the Old Testament. I have to keep rules and, and I have to be good. And if I'm not good, then, then woe unto me and God will put me in time out and I don't know what's going to happen. And Lord, I pray that this real gospel, the John 3.16 gospel, this unilateral covenant would, would uh, just be revealed to them now by your sweet Holy Spirit. Just pray. Just tell the Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe. Just like John 3.16 says, Lord, I believe that you gave me eternal life, that you shed your blood for my forgiveness. And you'll have this new covenant. It's for you. It was on him. If you want to know more about the new covenant, write this down. Read Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 29. Galatians 3, 7 through 29. And you'll see the difference between the old that Jesus fulfilled. It's, it's gone. And the new that you live under now. Don't miss next Sunday. We're going to finish our study. We're going to go from uh, the inauguration of the new covenant all the way through the ratification, the confirmation on Easter Sunday. God bless.